hint, I think, when we take the Lord's Supper, um, you know, it's not something that does more for us than remind us of what Jesus has done for us, but the bitterness of that juice hangs around for a while, right? And we need to be reminded that the price paid for us was a bitter price, price paid for our sin. And um, the first few months was here as pastor 12 years ago. We did the Lord's Supper and in the middle of the song service, and I was preaching from the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke handles things kind of the way the Seder Supper does in the, in the Lord's Supper. And it takes a drink of the wine and then takes the bread and takes the wine again. Well, I did the wine and the bread, and then we had to sing a choir special. It was a little difficult, and I did hear about it from those who were in the choir at the time. Uh, that that was not the easiest thing to make that happen. Anyway, um, f- fun things happen during life, and we can be reminded of those things along the way. I invite you this morning to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Um, on my office wall, I've shared this probably in the last few weeks even, I have a large banner, um, and I just took my shoes off. I hope you don't mind. Uh, it's holy ground, right? Um, I have a large banner that has the name Emmanuel, and that banner has been there for a long time. I don't remember when I didn't have it up there, although I didn't get it immediately when I came in uh, to the office, but it's been up there 10 years anyway, in the same place. And I walk past it every time I go in and out of my office. It's about that tall. So it's Emmanuel all the way down. If you've been in there, you've seen it. That's one of my very favorite names for Jesus because it shows us why he came. So many in our world try to make God this distant, far-off deity, a deistic view, so to speak, that we, we find in history and we see it today, too, that why has God allowed this and that to happen? And the fact is, is that God has, in his love for us, chosen to let us find our own way. That way is him. He wants us to choose him. And the way he did that is in the incarnation. It's in the, uh, the way he shows us his son. And out of his great love, he gives us the choice to choose him. And there is no love unless there is a choice present. You can't force somebody to love you. It doesn't happen. But as we look and see through the incarnation, we find that this God that we sometimes picture as far off and unknowing that he doesn't really worry about what we go through, this God mysteriously comes and becomes like us. There was a song when I was in college uh, by an artist that is very much not Christian that asked the question, what if God was one of us? And the first time I heard it, I knew enough about the Scripture and said he was one of us. But the question that asked, and one of my favorite questions that's asked in this is, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, right? I don't know what Jesus' bedroom looked like as a child. 
Did his parents have to get on him about cleaning things up? Who knows? We don't get that kind of information. What we do know is that God is not one to neglect us. He is one who became as us, who became one of us in the way he chose to do it. And that is mysterious to us. Why would God choose to do what we just read in Philippians chapter 2? To take on the form of a man. To empty himself of his glory. And suffer on a cross. There's great mystery in that. What breeds that kind of love? Well, we find in other places in Scripture, 1 John, that God is love. And it's this time of year that we, we picture that, and now he leaves us this spirit, this strength, this reminder of Emmanuel. So let's go to Matthew chapter 1. We'll read verses 18 through 25, and I invite you to stand as we read that together. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He called his name Jesus. Lord, we are reminded by your name, God with us, Emmanuel, And Jesus, Yeshua, the one who saves, that you came with purpose. Thank you for coming into our lives and paying the price. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, may be seated. There are a lot of things in both the gospel narratives that carry this part of the story that draw it all together. You know, we have the nativity that we moved off the front here. We moved over here to the side. But there, there are a lot of things that appear in this nativity. We have the, uh, the, the baby, pretty important part, right? You have the parents, Mary and Joseph. You have the shepherds. You have the magi or the wise men or the kings or whatever you end up putting there. You have the animals, And you have the declaration of the angel. All of these different kinds of things that we find over here. Now, that is a very systematic presentation of the Christmas story. Because if you read into Matthew 2, which, spoiler alert, we might be doing that next week. We find that these magi, these wise men, don't show up at the stable. And actually, the stable doesn't even show up in Matthew. Okay? That's in Luke. So if you want to get all of it put together and kind of put your timeline together, you need to be in the Gospel of Matthew, you need to be in the Gospel of Luke. 
and, and realize that John speaks of the incarnation immediately, but he speaks not of the birth here on earth, and that Mark skips it all entirely. entirely. <laughs> He's like, this is not what I'm here for. I'm here to tell you what Jesus did in his ministry and how he redeemed the world. The Gospels all take a different perspective. Matthew is a very Jewish book. It's one of the reasons that it appears first, because it shows fulfillment with that first genealogy you see in verses 1 through 17. It brings fulfillment immediately to the word of the Old Testament or the scriptures, as they they say, the prophets and, and the law and all of these different pieces that come together here. We find this genealogy divided up into three parts of 14. It's pretty cool how they did it. And... Uh, we, we find that the promise starts there in Abraham. If you go to the Gospel of Luke, you'll see it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. This plan was in place from the dawn of history, even eternity. Jesus came to fulfill his word, the word of the prophets that he would come and pay the penalty because of his great love. And the angel's message is consistent, and it's mysterious. It's even miraculous. And those are the things that in our world today, we either go way off the edge one direction or the other. Oh, miracles don't happen anymore. We don't need those anymore. I don't know about you, but I could use a few right now. Anyway, you know, some miracles there. And on the other end of it is everything is a miracle and miraculous. Well, one of the things I know for a fact in seeing my own children born and seeing life happen and seeing life end is that life itself is a miracle. There is no explanation for life happening except by the breath of the Creator. And so when we look at the account of the virgin birth that this woman had not known a man at this time, we say, how could that have happened? God happened. The birth of Jesus took place in this way. It's presented as historical fact. There's no, uh, talking about it with our, our youth this morning, there's no uh, mythologizing of things here. There's not a myth or a legend here at work. It's presented as historical fact by all four of the gospel writers. Not necessarily this exact moment, but this is the way the gospel is presented. This happened. We would not have written it down except that it be the truth. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So God is that author of life. We'll go to that Holy Spirit right there. God is the one who brings that life. He chose Mary because of her trust in him. Now, if you get back into uh, into other traditions in the Christian faith, they get go some strange places with Mary, frankly. Mary is not worthy of worship. Mary was a righteous woman whom God blessed, as you see in Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 1 and 2. But she was not herself deity. She was a righteous young lady whom God chose to do this. And she was betrothed to Joseph. What does that mean? That means she was engaged, but this engagement held legal validity. She was as good as married to him. 
She belonged to Joseph, but there was this rite of passage through the wedding time that they had not yet united their marriage physically. And so the fact that she was pregnant was a problem. It was a big problem. And Joseph loved her. He didn't want to see her uh, defamed or insulted or shamed because the, the penalty for adultery was death. Both the child and the woman. So Joseph didn't want that to happen, but he also felt that he couldn't be a part of this. But God shows up. Verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man, a righteous man, a good man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to hurt her. He just knew that there was a problem here. But God, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The whole story holds consistent to this place, to this spot right here. The child was from the Holy Spirit. The angel's message was that the child was from the Holy Spirit. We talked about angels a little bit, and we talked about them last week in worship. You know, those, those seraphim, they looked kind of strange, Right? They had six wings, flying, covering their feet and their eyes. Feet and eyes. I I know which part of my body I'm talking about. You know, they they weren't normal-looking critters. We don't know what this angel looks like in, in in, in the Gospel of Luke. It says the angel Gabriel comes with the same message. Consistency matters, right? He comes with this message to Mary as well. We don't get Mary's perspective here. We get Joseph's perspective. Do not fear. That's always the angel's message, by the way. Do not fear. How terrifying must it have been to have an angel appear to you? Whether it be in a dream, whether it be to the shepherds in the fields, whatever it looks like. I I probably would have been shaken a little bit. If I wore boots, I might have been shaken in them. But the terror that could be held here, came with the authority of the Almighty. And the message was, this child is from the Holy Spirit. This Trinitarian picture that we see here is there from the start. The child of the Holy Spirit brings life. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why Jesus? It's because of the prophetic nature of his life. Yeshua is the Aramaic or the Hebrew term, name there. The one who saves. God saves. Names come with purpose in the Scriptures. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Which prophet? In this case, we see that it was out of Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive a son and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means 
God with us. He is with us. That name itself holds great prophetic, prophetic fulfillment in the life of the believer. The one who saves is with us. He comes to us. He desires to bless the world through us. And that actually comes back to what we've been talking about for the last several weeks in the life of the church. You see, the promise of Emmanuel goes beyond just the incarnation. It goes to the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower the church to bless the world. And we come to this place that our faith hits this crisis point to where we say, is it my faith? Is it our faith? What, what do we know? What do we believe? We believe that the Lord saves. And now He today is with us. It's one of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's Supper is because we are promised His return. And that His Spirit is with us through these trials, through these struggles, through the discouragement, through the grief, through our sinful nature. He redeems us by His precious sacrifice for our sins. And He promises us that He will never leave us or forsake us. The Son comes that we might find life and life more abundantly. And He wants to bring us that life through this promise of Emmanuel, God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And so even today, we come to this place where we are reminded of the coming of our God. John chapter 1, that the Word becomes flesh and makes him His dwelling place among us. This is not something we can ever be worthy of. This is a gift. And just as the Magi brought those three gifts, gold, incense, and myrrh, symbolizing what they do in this Christ child, God sends His Spirit to us, reminding us that He is the one who saves. Here's the deal, guys. We have a problem. We try to find our own way. We try to solve our own problems. But God knows this. And the way He brings redemption is by His own completed work. What was His work? We read it earlier, Philippians chapter 2, He empties Himself. He gives His life so that we might know His great love. And Jesus preaches this, I mean, John 3.16, most of us are going to know that. Jesus preaches that to Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, that God is the one who brings salvation for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And why does He do that? He does that because we have already brought this judgment of sin upon ourselves. The wage of sin is death. 
We can't take care of that problem. We try. And we have gotten really good at medical science. But the, if anything, the last two years have shown us, our greatest fear has not been conquered. People are afraid to die. Why? Because I think in our, our own humanity, we recognize that there's, there's something more. And if we don't know the Creator, I don't want to know what's next. And so this, this fear that we have of death controls everything about our existence. We don't like being uncomfortable. We don't like being told we're wrong. We don't, we don't like that stuff. But if we're honest with ourselves, we see that day coming. And we've seen it come for those we love. The question is, what's next? So Jesus comes as the one who saves. The one who saves us from what? He saves us from that eternal condemnation from in a godless hell. That we would be separated from him forever. He comes and bridges this gap so that now Emmanuel is a reality forever. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells the followers to be the church, to go and bless the world with this message of salvation. And it goes beyond the feel-good, uh, you know, we, we, we real, read the Scriptures and it brings us warmth and comfort, and absolutely it should, but it comes with purpose. To do what the shepherds did when they saw this newborn king. They go and they proclaimed it and told everyone. To do what the angels did in obedience to the Father and declaring this truth. And ultimately to come as the Magi did and worship him with our very best of who we are, of what we have, to be reminded of His goodness and His faithfulness. So the message of the church, and this brings it back again, it all applies. I mean, you know, my, my favorite phrase about the Bible is, it applies. This message goes with us as we depart from this place. And especially this time of year, to be reminded that it's not just to turn on pretty lights in the shortest daylight of the year. Now, I was not, and you guys are going to say hallelujah, most of you would say hallelujah if you know my circumstances. I was not brave enough to climb on the roof this year. <laughs> yeah, nobody wanted that to happen this year. Maybe next year. Anyway, I love Christmas lights, though. Why? Because they remind us that the light has come into the world and shines in the darkest of times. Our world knows great darkness. Our world is a dark place, despite all the daylight you see coming in here right now. Because of what we just described earlier, the sin in our hearts. God calls us to take Jesus with us, to allow Him to work in us to be God 
in flesh. He came in flesh so that his spirit might dwell in his people. The question is, do you believe it? That's always what it comes back down to. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he gave his life for you, emptied himself of his glory, died a sinner's death so that we might find forgiveness in his name? Let's pray. Our God, you are faithful to us. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray, Lord, that you uh, give us the courage we need to bless you. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your son. And I pray that as we worship you now, we would set our hearts and our minds on your completed work. That this little baby is the Savior of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. You need that hope.